and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 58. I'm Nick Dixon, here as ever with Toby Young broadcasting from his shed. And coming up, Hamas attacked Israel in horrific fashion, and there are some appalling responses amongst the left. Farage says he won't join the Tories, and Starmer goes on a swearing spree, or does he? Plus loads more, and of course, peak woke. But Toby, we have to start with Israel. We don't exactly do geopolitics, we do a bit of it. We do culture war more, so it's a little bit out of our wheelhouse but there, there is a, obviously a strong culture war element to it as well there's the actual attack and then there's the bizarre in some cases appalling response uh so I th- maybe we could start with the attack bit first people are saying why did hamas do this were they preventing an israeli saudi pact and then there's another question of why did israel not manage to stop it peter hitchens suggested perhaps it was because they don't use technology and so they kind of go under the radar of satellites and so on did you have any take on on that? No, no particular take. I mean, I think it's plausible that the reason Hamas launched this attack now um, may have been at the behest of the Iranians who are worried about Saudi Arabia being drawn closer into Israel and by extension, America's orbit and becoming the dominant power in the region, thereby eclipsing Iran. Um, that's all quite plausible, I think. Um, and clearly, there has been some Iranian involvement in the attack, um, uh, though exactly how extensive that is remains to be seen. As I think um, we may go on to discuss, some Republicans in America are claiming that the $6 billion that was uh, frozen, uh, but has now been freed up and has flowed to Iran, I think it's in return for oil shipments. Um, uh, There was a prisoner swap and the US government arranged for these frozen accounts to be unfrozen. Iran got six billion supposedly, and there's some suggestion that it could have used that money to pay for train the terrorists. Um, uh, As to why Israel wasn't better prepared, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I can't claim any special insight. Um, I've read what you've read. Um, it may be that uh, that they um, didn't use any electronic media in the course of planning the attack. It may be that um, Israel was particularly vulnerable because it was the final day of a particular holiday um, and it was on the Jewish Sabbath. Um, most of the checkpoints on the Israel... Um, uh, what Gaza Strip border um, uh, are guarded by uh, women. Um, I don't know whether that was a contributory factor or not, but some of them quite young and inexperienced. Um, uh, Israel very much relies on various high-tech wizardry to detect any incursion of its various borders. Um, And so they may have you know, gone low tech in order to avoid being detected by any of those early warning systems. Um, and then there's, um, uh, it's possible that um, the uh, agents that Mossad had placed in Hezbollah, in the Iranian regime, in Hamas, uh, some of them at least were double agents and therefore fed Israel false information to camouflage this attack. So, you know, a number of factors, a number of theories, but the Israelis certainly seem to have been caught 
off guard. And that, that's been a kind of a blow to the reputation of the Israeli uh, intelligence services who are, you know, supposed to be one of the best in the world. Yeah. Okay, well, well let's get on to safer ground for us, which is the kind of response to it and the more cultural element, which there's loads on. The BBC were part of this. So there's this article in the Telegraph, BBC pressured to rip up style guide for refusing to call Hamas fighters terrorists. And a lot of people notice this. Why are the BBC not using the word terrorist? And it did seem very strange. We've all seen the horrific videos, I'm sure, or most of us, probably all of us. We've seen what clearly you could easily call terrorist acts, but the BBC wouldn't say terrorist. And it comes down to this style guide, which advises the staff not to call them terrorists and instead use words like gunman or militant. I saw the gunman floating about. And I thought, that's a weird word. And it comes from this style guide. And I found that very strange. I think it's, they're going so far trying to be impartial that they won't call obvious terrorists terrorists. I mean, you could still be even sympathetic to Palestine or Palestinians and not be sympathetic to Hamas, who are not exactly great for Palestinians, it's also fair to say. So I think they've gone overboard in their quest for impartiality would be a, a generous reading. It's not quite the Washington Post calling al-Baghdadi an austere religious scholar, but it's sort of a touch of that, isn't it? And that's the BBC. And then... The really appalling responses from some people at Navarra Media. I mean, the absolute worst was Rivka Brown. I mean, Michael Walker also did one. He said, so guys, do we support the right of an occupied people to fight an occupier or not? Trying to link it to Ukraine, of course. And this is a guy that appears on the media. He even appears on GB News. And then this Rivka Brown, who also works for Navarra, with the most shocking t- post I saw, formerly tweet, now post on X, she says, today should be a day of celebration for supporters of democracy and human rights worldwide as Gazans break out of their open-air prison and Hamas fighters cross into their colonizers' territory. The struggle for freedom is rarely bloodless and we shouldn't apologize for it. Which, when you're posting that from the safety of probably Islington, you know, and she's actually Jewish, interestingly, that's just so disgusting. You, you witness people being m- murdered and their bodies paraded around and obvious rapes taking place and you just you say yeah this is this is a day of celebration you have to be absolutely sick your ideology has completely usurped your humanity in that case and then she did a follow-up tweet about the response from israel hospital ventilators heart rate monitors dialysis machines thousands of people will die as a result of this power cut tell me how this is any different to palestinians murdering israeli citizens and well one it probably is different but two even if it's not different you would have some grounds for that argument if you hadn't said the other thing was a cause for celebration so if it's not any different, well, then we should be celebrating this as well. She's undermined her own argument. She's fallen back on the kind of, hey, guys, how is this any different? Oh, aren't I clever? It's like, you, you were openly celebrating the other one, moron. Anyway, what do you think, Toby? Yeah, there has been a, a shocking outbreak of whataboutery, both sideism, outright support for Hamas um, from some quite unexpected quarters. Um, maybe not that surprising that a contributor to Navarra Media should be celebrating uh, what's happened um, uh, or other members of the woke left. Um, there was one one example was um, an assistant professor at the London School of Economics. That was quite shocking. Um, lots of people uh, saying in a kind of um, smug, self-congratulatory way this is what yeah did you think decolonization was just about the vibes this is what it means but which is a, an absolute cell phone because um it's now going to be much easier for academics of a kind of classical liberal conservative bent to resist 
attempts to decolonize their departments, decolonize their curriculums. Uh, if if the supporters of the decolonization agenda are now making it explicitly clear that decolonization means the rape of innocent women and the murder of grandmothers and babies by genocidal anti-Semitic terrorists. Um, so that, that, that's been, uh, I suppose, across all these, you know, um, different stories, the kind of common thread is that the woke left who often present themselves, you know, as part of the be kind brigade and are always trying to um, justify the censorship of their opponents on the grounds that their opponents are trafficking in hate speech or misinformation or disinformation. Um, that's cl- it couldn't be clearer that this supposed objection to hate speech is just a smokescreen for trying to censor their political opponents when, um, when everything they're saying in justification of this attack, I think, clearly falls much more squarely under the heading of hate speech and decolonization, if this is what it means, falls much more squarely under the heading of hate speech than, for instance, saying you don't think trans women are women. Yeah. And it's it's not just hate speech, but it's violence, isn't it? it and all, like you say, all these tweets came out and posts as they now are. That one you mentioned, what did you all think decolonization meant? Vibes, papers, essays, losers. And then Someone else said decolonization has never and will never happen in the halls of academia. Decolonization is always a violent phenomenon. Someone else says, this person here says, when you read Fanon, meaning France, Fanon, where a lot of this comes from, the uh, what's the book, The Wretched of the Earth, which is some people see as the first in this post-colonial trend or decolonization trend. When you read Fanon, you learn that during decolonization, some, not all combatants commit terrible things. He doesn't justify these acts, but situates them within the colonial, psychosocial, and asymmetrical power context in which they're committed. Just a kind of like repulsive academic justifying of rape and murder we've seen. It's something really wrong with you when you side with these ideologies. But yeah, it's a mask-off moment for decolonization. I've just interviewed Professor Doug Stokes on the current thing. His book is against decolonization. And it's all right sitting around in, in your in your lecture halls going on about this stuff. But then you see what it really means. It is a mask off moment for the left. You know, they do want to destroy our civilization or our Western society in pretty much by any means. So it is a, it, you, do, you do find out who these people are. It, it brought up the question for me, should Navarra people be allowed, you know, in, in the media and on GB? Because I'm not a de-platform type of guy. But I do note that the Overton window is so far left that someone like Michael Walker can appear on the alleged right-wing channel, GB News, and, and you see Ash Sarkar interviewed on all sorts of things. And Aaron Bastani, who seems to be the more reasonable one. But if, if Navarra basically are backing rape and murder, or certainly people at Navarra because they're saying it's part of decolonization, it's quite interesting that they're on the mainstream media, whereas people like Carl Benjamin are not even booked on GB News, infinitely more decent and reasonable and thoughtful person. So I just... It's not. It's nothing new, but it's just interesting how far the Overton window is to the left. That these are the people who we're, we're happy to platform, whereas you wouldn't get anything. You wouldn't even get a much more reasonable person on the right, let alone the equivalent on the right, which would be something like open fascist. Mm. Yes, I mean it's a from a free speech point of view. Um, I think there are lots of pitfalls here we want to try and avoid falling into, if we can. Um, it's almost like the opposite of the Black Lives Matter imbroglio. Um, now, um, you know, it's people on our side in the culture war 
calling for people on the other side who've used the wrong language, who've said things they regard as beyond the pale, who haven't respond responded in what they think is an appropriate way to this appalling slaughter. We learnt, I think, today that the number of civilian killed now numbers over a thousand. Um, but we need to be careful, I think, not to call for no platforming, censorship, arrest, provided the support that various people are expressing for Hamas um, uh, doesn't cross over into unlawful speech. I mean, Hamas is a legally prescribed organisation in the UK, but I don't think that means that it should be unlawful or is unlawful to express support for them. Um, I mean, I think, as you say, the, the line to take is not that Michael Walker shouldn't be allowed on GB News anymore, or that Navarro Media should be demonetized or kicked off YouTube again. Um, the line to take is that, you know, the Everton window should be less narrow, um, and it certainly shouldn't be as tilted leftwards as it is. If these, if this kind of speech is acceptable, and if this doesn't rule you out of appearing uh, on channels like GB News um, and um, being included in the public conversation more widely, then having the views that Carl Benjamin does shouldn't rule you out either. I think yeah, we can we can use this to make a broader argument uh, for tolerance of um, extremely unpleasant, offensive, dissenting points of view, um, rather than as an argument for banning those points of view. Yeah, and Carl is not the equivalent because his views aren't even appalling in any way. He just made a rude joke once. You know, you could you'd have to talk about is it is the equivalent Tommy Robinson or Katie Hopkins or someone. It's probably someone much more extreme because if you're an open communist who wants decolonization and you and you think rape and murder are justified along the way and parading women's bodies around on video, then you go, well, who is the equivalent to that on the right? I mean, it's someone who would never be anywhere near a TV station. I assure you. I mean, you know. If you have actual communists on there, you have to have actual fascists on there, or you get rid of them both, and you and you just like like you say, but you don't want to deplatform. So I just think it's remarkable. I mean, it's nothing new, is it? Because Diane Abbott can say on BBC One on this week, I think Mao did more good than harm on balance. So there's always been this bizarre asymmetry where you can just say anything horrific on the left, and we've just seen another example here. But but it is interesting that some people are getting called out for it. I mean, Mia Khalifa, the porn star, <laughs> got sacked. From a, I think a company called something like Red Light Holland, I believe it is, but also from Playboy. And it was because of some of her tweets. One of them included, can someone please tell the freedom fighters in Palestine to flip their phones and film horizontal? Another one, there was some, she posted some sort of scene and said it was a Renaissance painting. She just had all these, and there are more tweets, just absurd things justifying the violence. And she later tried to roll it back a bit and say Hamas is not Palestinians, blah, blah. But it was already a bit late and she got sacked by... Playboy and these other companies. So that was interesting. It's like you're too immoral for porn. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think one good argument for not going, you know, not not trying to suppress um, the speech of people supporting, celebrating these atrocities um, is that it exposes the kind of ugly underbelly of their woke, supposedly progressive worldview if they can unhesitatingly justify the slaughter of innocent civilians, the kidnapping of innocent people to use as bargaining chips, um, and they've already murdered some of the hostages. And in one case, they murdered a hostage and then posted 
video footage of her murder. This was a grandmother on her own Facebook account. I mean, you know, if people like Ash Sarker are willing to appear on GB News and say, yeah, well done, well done, Hamas, for publishing uh, the video of your murder of this innocent Jewish grandmother on her own Facebook page, brilliant stuff, well done, what geniuses you are, then let's let her say that. Because, I mean, I'm not suggesting she has said that or would say it, but if people um, of a similar political persuasion to her, perhaps a little bit further to the kind of loony left, are willing to appear on public platforms and say that, then let them say, you know, it will destroy their political um, uh, support. You know, let let them expose themselves in that way um, and destroy their own cause. Yeah. And yeah, and Ash Saka hasn't said that, but Rivka Brown has said said actually probably worse stuff than that. Um, Yeah. And and maybe a brief word about Corbyn as well, who did a typical Corbyn type tweet. He said, the unfolding events in Israel and Palestine are deeply alarming. We need an immediate ceasefire, an urgent de-escalation, and we need a route out of this tragic cycle of violence. Ending the occupation is the only means of achieving a just and lasting peace. So it's very much a pro-Palestine take on that. Which he's not hiding that in any way, but that's that was his take. And people immediately were saying, "Look, Corbyn's called these people friends, Hamas." And then he said he regretted that later. He said calling them friends. He claimed he was using inclusive language at a meeting. But if you actually listen to that full video, which I have, he goes on to say. Possibly worse stuff than that. He says the idea that an organization that is dedicated towards the good of the Palestinian people and bringing about long-term peace and social justice and political justice in the whole region should be labeled as a terrorist organization by the British government is really a big, big historical mistake. And I would invite the government to reconsider their position on this matter and start talking directly to Hamas and Hezbollah. So he, he says they shouldn't be called terrorist organizations and we should deal with them. So that's worse actually even arguably than just calling them friends. So that's the guy that almost ran the country. Well, he didn't almost run it, did he? He got spanked. But the, he, that was the guy that was leader of the opposition. Kind of shocking to think about. Yes. What do you think, about, what do you think um, of Corbyn's well, response? Well, utterly predictable um, uh, and, you know, disgusting. Um, but uh, uh, one silver lining is that he's currently getting a bit of attention. And I imagine quite a lot of, um, you know, support on the street and from within his own bubble. Um, uh, I don't think he's actually turned up at any of these pro Hamas demonstrations like the one that took place last night outside the Israeli embassy. Um, but I imagine he's enjoying the attention, um, uh, reveling in the limelight once more. And I'm hoping this will give him a taste for, um, uh, for, 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 for the attention. He, he, I'm hoping this will make it more likely that he'll run as an independent in the um, London mayoral election next year, which will seriously cannibalise um, Sadiq Khan's vote um, and make it much more likely that the Tories can win. Um, I think on balance, this, this, these events will make it more likely. They'll have given him a flavour, you know, a reminder of what it was like to be the centre of attention in the media spotlight. Uh, and, you know, like most people in the media spotlight, he'll find it absolutely, the attention absolutely irresistible. I want more interesting. of it. I, I don't like the attention. Maybe that's why I'm not doing better. Um, but that's very interesting that he could split the vote. But since you mentioned, I will get onto the neocon response, by the way, and I do want to, I won't be totally one-sided on this, but I, since you mentioned the, the, the um, riots, or what do you call them, protests that are very aggressive, not really riots, but they're aggressive kind of demonstrations around the embassy and so on. This was another aspect. I mean, Suella Bradman just got criticized for saying the multiculturalism has failed. And I do understand the pedantic 
thing of that's a tautology. Yeah, can, how can multi, not a tautology, but how can multiculturalism fail when it already means that the cultures remain discrete and separate and they don't assimilate? But that's a pedantic point made by Hugo Rifting. But basically, she meant that multiculturalism is a mess and a disaster. And surely this just shows shows that. I mean, we've we've got a microcosm of the world's problems in London, which was inevitable with with the way if you don't assimilate, you don't think of yourself as British then you celebrate Palestine at what you see as a Palestine win, if you don't, especially if you're very zealous and don't care about the just human horror of it, which apparently a lot of these people don't. So it's basically, it's because you don't identify as British. The only people that identify as British that are supporting it, as we've discussed, are left-wing intellectuals. But the rest are just people who like, they see themselves as seemingly just, you know, they're Palestinian. They just happen to be in London, but they hate Israel and they may well hate Britain. Yeah, I think it's, um, it is quite a complicated issue. Um, I think the way to the way to kind of the, maybe the one way to look at what Suella meant and why the pro Hamas protests feel like a vindic- vindication of what she said is that maybe what she meant was um, that um, for multiculturalism to work successfully, it doesn't require newly arrived migrants to completely assimilate and. Um, uh, denounce their former culture and the values associated with it. But it does require newly arrived migrants and their and the descendants, second, third generation migrants, to embrace certain core aspects of our culture. And it's a failure, not insofar as um, there isn't complete assimilation, because as you say, that wouldn't be multiculturalism. That would be something else, more like the French model, um, which has also failed. Um, uh, it's a failure in that some ethnic groups, not all, some ethnic groups um, uh, have failed to embrace kind of what we regard as core British values. Um, and I guess the celebrations of what's happening in Israel, the pro-Hamas protests, um reflect um, a kind of unwillingness to accept some of what we consider the kind of tenets of our society. Um, Things like the rule of law, um, uh, a belief in democracy, due process, um, uh, freedom of speech, uh, tolerance for people of different religions and beliefs and so forth. You'd expect people um, to accept those, you know, core British values if you're going to say multiculturalism has been successful. And it seems seems clear that the people demonstrating outside the Israeli embassy last night in Kensington don't accept those values. If they can celebrate something like this, an act carried out by an organisation we've prescribed and... I think justifiably denounce as as a terrorist organization, then it feels like they're rejecting, you know, something that's really essential about being British and enjoying the benefits of the British way of life. Yeah, I think that's that's very fair. Um, I think you well, I think you've covered that pretty well. What about this other point I wanted to get onto, which is have some of the neocons got carried away? I think we've been pretty clear on condemning the attacks and certainly condemning the response as well from many people. But then I have to also say, 
is it going too far to immediately go into, well, you know, carpet bomb the mode? I, I don't think that's helpful either. We see Nikki Haley trying to tie it to 9-11. It did feel like 9-11 in some ways when she made that explicit connection and she says it's a war, it's an attack on America, you know, and it get, and the neocon language ramps up very quickly on the Santas as well and basically saying this is Iran and it seems like there's a sort of, and the suspicion is he seems quite desperate for war with Iran. That's the critique, at least. And then you look at Peterson, someone like Jordan Peterson, who is brilliant on Jungian analyses of the Bible, but can be quite poor on politics when he his Kavanaugh tweet was very weird. His support of Mike Pence was odd. And, you know, he's often spoken out on politics and got it a bit wrong. He said, give him hell to Netanyahu. I mean, is this justified, Toby, or is this is this a sort of slight kind of emotional sort of, you know, over over emotional lust for war when you're not actually the one that's going to be involved and obviously innocent civilians are going to die and so on. I read that as just a kind of tribal response that um, he sees Israel as being on the same side as him um, and he feels much more of affinity with people who support Israel and Israel's right to exist than he does with Israel's opponents. It felt more like that to me, just a kind of an expression of tribal loyalty uh, rather than you know, warmongering. Um, and I guess there, there is a question about, you know, um, how far is Israel justified in going in response? And one of the other arguments, feeble arguments you hear in justification of the Hamas attack um, is that, well, Israel has responded by firing rockets into the West Bank um, or the Gaza Strip um, and um, lots of innocent civilians have died. How is that any different? Moral equivalence, both sides of them. But it, it does make a difference when, you know, it makes a difference who started it. And I, but I think that, 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 that you can't really justify a kind of mass terrorist attack, including what the indiscriminate slaughter of young people, including teenagers, at a rave in the Negev desert, um, seemingly a death toll now higher than 250. Um, you can't justify that attack by referring to events that took place after the attack. I mean, that just seems straightforwardly illogical. Um, But I think the key moral difference between Israel and most of its Arab enemies, including Hamas, Hezbollah, um, is that civilians were targeted by the terrorists. Civilians weren't um, uh, collateral damage. They weren't killed in the crossfire in you know gun battles between Hamas and the Israeli Defense Force. They targeted civilians. In some cases, they targeted children. Uh, they targeted the elderly. They've kidnapped civilians to use as bargaining chips. Um, and when the Israelis um, do end up killing civilians, when they retaliate or when they try and take out rocket batteries in the Gaza Strip. Um, The reason that happens is because Hamas placed their rocket launchers, their 
caches of weapons inside schools and hospitals. Uh, precisely so they can point to civilian casualties when the Israelis blow up these arms um, and say, look, the Israelis are targeting civilians. But I think there is a key moral difference. The Israelis never deliberately set out to kill civilians, whereas Hamas do. Yeah, and actually that's been raised in an interesting exchange between Ben Shapiro and the Tate brothers. So there's an original post here, just in the UN special reporter for human rights in Palestine, we are horrified by what's happening and we call for a truce. And then Ben Shapiro replies and they can F right off. And he doesn't say F, by the way. So kind of uncharacteristic language from Shapiro. I mean, obviously he feels very strongly, of course he would, and saying no to a truce. Now, Andrew Tate replies, Mr. Tough Guy, let me assure you as someone who has who does his has does his own fighting. Okay, it's a typo. Let me assure you as someone who has done his own fighting, as opposed to excitedly encouraging others to do it for him while sitting at home on a comfy chair, peace is always worth a conversation. And that tweet, I mean, it doesn't have quite the likes of Shapiro's, but it has about half. And then Shapiro replied to that. Hold on, but but what is the fighting on. that um, Tate's referring to? He's referring to having done kickboxing. He's basically saying, well, that doesn't really if you've count, been in does fight. It? That's, that's sort of, he's, trying to, he's trying to imply that you know, he's, he's, he's been in war. He's seen the ugly face of war and therefore peace is always preferable. But being in a kickboxing bout isn't quite the same thing, is it? It's not the same thing. If you wanted to steal man and be generous, you'd say, well, it's about the reality of violence and him having a taste of, you know, the, obviously it's not war, but those those fights are very brutal, those kickboxing fights. I guess he's saying it's very easy for sort of soft people to sit around making demands. And Shapiro has had this criticism for years, by the way, that he's a bit of a neocon and that he's, he, 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 you know, he sits around demanding war. And that is a criticism of a lot of neocons. Whereas Tate's just saying, Tate believes from his experience and that he understands violence better and the reality of it is, is, is his claim. But yeah, I understand that kickbox is not the same. And um, I can't actually find Tate's response, uh, Shapiro's response to that annoyingly, but... Oh, no, here we go. I've got it. Let me assure you, as someone who has not pimped women and bragged about it, that morality requires that those who rape women and kidnap children must be eradicated, not negotiated with. That's Shapiro's response to Andrew. Then Tristan Tate, of course, defends his brother and says, a Jewish man speaking of the eradication of a race of people, 2023 is a scary time to be alive. I wonder how many of the women and kids who are soon to be obliterated, kidnapped, or raped... Sorry, I wonder how many of the women and kids who are soon to be obliterated, kidnapped, or raped anybody. My guess is zero. This is nihilistic and evil. Then Shapiro says, I call for those who rape women and kidnap children to be eradicated. So not only are you immoral, you're apparently illiterate. Then Tristan says, yeah, I'm sure only men who fight Hamas die in these airstrikes you're praising. The footage from the ground says otherwise. Either you change your tune in 22 hours or you literally forget what you post. And then Shapiro comes back finally, either you're stupid or you're morally illiterate. Hamas literally hides behind civilians, as you said. They are currently texting civilians and telling them not to leave target areas. They put their headquarters, military headquarters, under a hospital. So there's there's that exchange. I mean, I, I think it's probably fair to say Shapiro won it overall. But what do you think? Yeah, um, I, I'd, I'd say Shapiro probably got the better of Tate in that exchange. Why is um, Tate weighing in on this? I mean, you can sort of understand why Shapiro is, um, but it seems an odd one for Andrew Tate to be getting into. But that reminds me of another point I wanted to make in connection with this, which is often the very same people that um, have been condemning 
Andrew Tate and denouncing him as a dangerous misogynist who has this toxic influence over adolescent males, um, aren't in any way condemning um, the rape and murder of young women and the parading around of young women naked by Hamas, the humiliation, the murder um, of young women. I mean, surely that's a far more egregious example of misogyny than anything Andrew Tate's ever done or been accused of doing. Um, And more generally, you know, the woke left seem to have a complete blind spot about the misogyny as well as the homophobia of um, these Islamist terror organizations like Hamas. I mean, you know, if you're if you're if you're a gay Palestinian, you're much, much better off living in Israel than you are in the Gaza Strip under, you know, the political control of Hamas. Um, uh, uh, there's very little respect for human rights across the board in the Gaza Strip. Um, uh, there's very little regard for democracy, the rule of law. It's a completely corrupt, um, uh, you know, Hamas are sort of more or less like ISIS um, uh, and have a similar attitude to, you know, apostates, heretics, homosexuals, um, don't regard non-Muslim women as, you know, having any rights at all, perfectly legitimate to kidnap and sexually enslave them. All of this, you know, none of it's been condemned by by, by the, the woke left, who supposedly care passionately about the rights of minorities, particularly women and homosexuals. Yeah, exactly. It exposes the flimsiness of their argument. And they talk about misogyny. They just do that because it's convenient. Their ideology is all that matters to them. And so, yeah, they attack Tate because he's an ideological enemy, but then they also attack Israel for the same reason. And yeah, as you say, these people wouldn't be treated well in these regimes. The Rivka Brown woman who's, who's saying it's a day of celebration and then the, particularly Mia Khalifa, the porn star. I mean, how do you think she would be treated, you know, <laughs> in, on the side that she's defending? And then later she claims she's defending the Palestinian people as separate, but it didn't seem like that. So, yeah, completely absurd contradiction there. Absolutely. Um, what about the question of would it have happened under Trump? Because Victor Davis Hanson has written a brilliant post about this. It's far too long to go into. But one of the key points is this $6 billion that Biden released for Iran. The Biden administration had recently released some $6 billion to Iran through a prison swap deal that saw South Korea hand over embargoed Iranian money to Qatar despite Tehran's increased anti-Israel rhetoric and its loud brag about the escalation. So that's one, but he has a whole list of points about how Biden's made the, this situation more unstable and, and backed the wrong people. And, and, you know, the evidence is empirically, as I often say, that under Trump, we didn't have any of this. I'm not saying it's causation we can't prove it but we can say under trump we didn't have war in ukraine we didn't have this war on new war in israel i mean has biden contributed to this maybe um he he i think they've they've certainly been engaged in kind of um a lot of diplomacy with iran in the hope that if they can bring iran back from the edge and um, embed it in various geopolitical institutions that it will become more responsible, more respectable, will stop funding terrorist organizations like Hamas. Um, and if that if that was 
what the Biden administration were thinking, then they've clearly miscalculated. Um, uh, it may just uh, w- would Putin have invaded Ukraine uh, when Trump was in office? Uh, maybe he would have been marginally less likely to. Um, I think that's uh, I think that's that's a reasonable supposition. I think he's definitely been less likely to, and I've talked about it before. It's because they don't they just don't know what Trump's going to do. He has very strong rhetoric, and you know all their planners, the Russian people, the people who plan these wars years and years in advance, and all their strategists. They can't really account for Trump. This was one argument I heard anyway from an expert on it. And I find that fairly likely that, you know, they just don't know what Trump's going to do. His 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 foreign policy seems to involve, you know, tweets about my nuclear buttons bigger than yours to North Korea. And there was a similar threats to Putin. And do you want to take the chance? You know, Trump's there in the White House. Do you want to take the chance that he won't that he won't hit you really hard? Mm. I don't know. It certainly seems Biden's made the world far more unstable. You know, that's how it seems as a layman anyway. I mean, I think I think it's a sort of double-edged sword with Trump, isn't it? Because on the one hand, as you say, his rhetoric, his instability, his unpredictability um, uh, acts as a deterrent. Um, So perhaps, you know, the Iranian regime would have thought more carefully about sponsoring this attack on Israel if Trump had been president, because, you know, who knows how he might have responded. and what revenge, you know, might have been taken on Iran itself um, uh, by the Americans. Um, so yes, um, it's great to have someone like Trump in the White House to deter these acts of aggression, these unspeakable atrocities. Um, but on the other hand, after they occur, I'm not sure I'd want Trump kind of um, masterminding the response. I mean, let's suppose Trump was in the White House and this attack had happened. Um, uh, There would, I think, be a risk that um, America would retaliate against Iran and that could trigger, you know, a full-scale global conflict. Um, And that would be quite frightening. Um, So great that he's a deterrent, but... um, I'd be certainly rather worried if um, if the deterrent failed and these things happened anyway on his watch. Yeah, but I look at the the reality in Trump. The time under Trump was much more peaceful, so I'd still much prefer Trump. But here's a cynical point, maybe not cynical enough for some of our listeners. Does this help Biden in the election? I mean, Biden was looking an absolute mess, assuming there was going to be a fair election, let's say. But now he has a war that you know where he can look good fairly easily and come in and support Israel. That's usually a, a, a boon for, for a candidate who's struggling. Yeah, maybe. Um, uh, I suppose it partly depends on what happens next. Um, but uh, without doubt, um, Trump will do his level best to blame what's happened in Israel on Biden's kind of weakness. Um, and that may cut through, um, particularly with, you know, um, Jewish American voters. Um, so I don't think it's um, unequivocally uh, a boon for uh, Joe Biden. I think it, you know, it, it remains to be seen. It depends who can kind of, it depends whether some of the blame for what's happened can be stuck to him. Yeah. And there's also the point, maybe I should have said earlier that the some of the weapons being used come from the pathetic failed retreat 
from Afghanistan by Biden as well. So yeah, it could certainly be used against Biden just as easily. Just finally on this then, maybe there's not much to say on this necessarily, but it was interesting, and you made this point just before we started, that X has given us a more reliable account of these events than the mainstream media. And, and in the past, we'd have had to rely on the media. New York Times has written some weird, equivocal, fairly gross stuff, and the BBC won't call Hamas terrorists and so on. But we get to see, I mean, get to is a strange word because they're so horrific, but we, we can see the videos ourselves and decide. And has that is that a game changer for this kind of thing? Well, it certainly makes it um, more difficult, I think, for um, the mainstream media to engage in both sidism or to try and um, give the Hamas terrorists a kind of veneer of respectability by describing them as, you know, combatants or gunmen. Um, whether the mainstream media would have... I mean, that, that was a sort of the initial response of the mainstream media, which was very much undercut by actually seeing the footage that people on the ground were posting on X. Um, but it might be that the mainstream media would have adjusted once um, it became clear, you know, the scale of the slaughter, the wanton slaughter became clear. Um, but certainly, um, at the very least, the presence of all these, all this footage on X made it harder for the MSN to maintain uh, any kind of pretense of impartiality um, and made it abandon it kind of sooner than perhaps it otherwise would. Okay. Well, we actually have a very similar topic. Well, moving on then, it's sort of similar because I'm talking about being able to see video evidence, which is the Starmer deep fake clip, which is going to a slightly lighter topic. But actually, Toby, do you want to, is it too early to our first advert? No, I can do our first ad. It's a new ad. So um, this is an ad from Life Guru AI. Feeling overwhelmed by life's challenges or unsure where to start with your big dreams? Say hello to Life Guru AI, your personal AI-powered life planner. It's more than just an organizer. Consider it a custom life coach right in your pocket. What sets it apart? Life Guru AI tracks your habits and tasks, providing invaluable real-time analytics. Whether you're aiming to get fit, learn a new skill, or just make the most of your day, these insights help you level up. But here's the real game changer. Life Guru AI comes with cutting-edge conversational AI. Need to adjust your plan on the fly or seeking a quick motivational boost? Chat with your AI guru anytime. It's like having a 24-7 accountability partner. Don't miss this opportunity. Life Guru AI is launching soon. Register your interest at lifeguruai.com. That's all one word, lifeguruai.com. Or contact them at info at lifeguruai.com. So go to the website, check out what Life Guru AI can offer you, lifeguruai.com, or contact them for more information. Uh, and you can do that by emailing them at info at lifeguruai.com. Thanks to our new sponsor. And we, we do have over 20,000 listeners a week, considerably over 20,000 listeners a week. So if you want to advertise, you really should, because we're still doing it bespoke for now. We've had debates about how we should do it and whether we should use an ad company and so on, but we're actually still doing it pretty much bespoke. So, we, you know, get in touch. Where, where do they email about adverts, Toby? I think they can email um, uh, 
probably the easiest thing is to um, still email um, the daily skeptic uh, at gmail.com. Um, we have set up um, a new email address. We can tell people about that next week. But um, for the time being, if you're interested in advertising on this podcast, email me or Nick at the daily skeptic at gmail.com. Yeah, and you'll be getting to a massive audience at ridiculously cheap mates rates because of the way we're doing it so unofficially. Uh, and you'll get a much cheaper rate than you'd get anywhere else in the industry, and you'll get it out to well over 20,000 people. All right, so let's move on and do this Starmer thing then. I'm sure everyone's seen this. It was the Starmer deep fake. I say I'm sure everyone's seen this, but not everyone spends their lives just following the culture war and politics. Upset. They actually have lives, I've heard. But unfortunately, I'm cursed to do that. So this was the Starmer alleged deep fake video, and it was Starmer saying... He could be heard ranting over a din. This is how the Express puts it. That effing tablet, F sake. I literally told you, didn't I? F sake. Bloody moron. No, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. I'm effing sick of it every single time. Just shut your effing mouth, effing idiot. And you thought, and my take was that there's no way this is Starmer because he's actually expressing a clear opinion. And uh, another take was that he, you know, he's far too much emotion and passion for Starmer. But it was quite nice to hear him actually going for it. Now, I, I thought this does sound very realistic. Then I heard a follow-up one that was almost identical, where he's talking about Liverpool and how he hates Liverpool. And I was like, okay, this is almost identical. It's, it's, it does suggest it's AI. And uh, Sir Simon Clark, even though he's a conservative, said, look, let's not share this. This is a deep fake. And loads of people came forward and said this, which is okay. But then the only thing that bothered me is people like Sophie Ridge and various politicians, Tom Tugendhat and others, started using the phrase, it's a threat to democracy. And normally when they use that phrase, it means they're about to tell us why GB News has to be shut down or we can't eat meat anymore. I'm like, oh, you know, the things they do in the name of, oh, it's a threat to democracy. But of course, it, it is a threat to democracy. It's also a new way of getting out of trouble. When Trump did his locker room talk, he could have just said, folks, it's an AI deep fake. It's called deep fake. Like he could have just claimed it was a deep <laughs> yeah. fake when it wasn't. That's a new tactic you could use. Um, what did you think, Toby? Starmer, was this? Well, uh, I, I, yeah, when I listened to it, I... I was completely persuaded that it was real. And I think I I liked your tweet um, drawing attention to it. Um, but then when I read, um, I think I saw a tweet from Tom Tugendhat saying, this is a deep fake. Please don't spread it around the internet. Don't retweet it. Don't like it. I went back and unliked your tweet <laughs> after that. Oh, but, God. but my tweet was just <laughs> funny. You could, you, could, I, you could like my tweet while still thinking it's fake. Maybe, maybe. I, I felt like... I said it wasn't him because he you expresses had, a clear had, opinion. Right, yeah. Okay, yeah, but I thought that was a kind of, that was a joke. You weren't actually saying it wasn't Correct, him. so you could have still liked um, it. So, well, I, I thought unless you were making it explicit that this wasn't real, I, I, it would be wrong for me to like it because it would have been, I don't know. Um, I didn't want to be accused of having kind of uh, spread this. <laughs> spread. This. But when I first heard it, I listened to it when I saw your tweet, I, it did sound, I was completely taken in by it. I mean, how do we know it was a deep fake? How do we know that wasn't just, um, you know, the cover story? No, we don't. And, and the only thing that made me think it was that someone released an almost identical one on another topic. That's the only thing, time when I really thought, oh, it actually yeah. is a deep fake. But until then, I thought, no, this is just his get out. This, this, this is him. It is, you know, because it is very good. And if it is a deep fake, it's disturbingly good. Some people have written abusive tweets to me saying, you know, let GB's gone lefty. This is, this is real. As if we should have just gone on GB News and just unequivocally said it was real. Like, yeah, another great lawsuit for GBD, another Ofcom investigation. You obviously can't do that. But no, I thought it, I honestly thought it still might be real until, yeah, I, I, there was another, I have to find it, but it's, it's on some, it's about Liverpool and he just says almost the exact same stuff. 
but about Liverpool and certain right. phrases repeat. Right. So it probably is just right. a very good fake. Yeah, I mean, it sounded uncannily like him. And um, another thing which made it quite credible is that it wasn't clear what he was annoyed about. You know, there was, it, was, it was sort of, um, there was no context. You were just told this was him um, berating, you know, a member of his staff for kind of screwing up. Um, but it wasn't clear how they'd screwed up. Um, uh, and that, that somehow made it, because it was all, sounded a bit chaotic and there was no kind of, the absence of any kind of explanatory context made it more rather than less credible, I thought. Uh, but anyway, it, let, let's accept that um, it was just a deep fake. Yeah, it's going to be the new deep fake wars, another disturbing development really, isn't it, in 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 the world? Well, I think, incidentally, you asked, you know, when people like Tom Hoot took and say this is a threat to democracy, you know, then you immediately... Yeah, I've lost you know, all my rights. Sort of <laughs> pat, pat your pockets to see if your pockets have been picked, lost all your rights. I think it probably is part of the kind of case to regulate AI, isn't it? It's to kind of, uh, we need to divert lots of taxpayer taxpayers money to creating these vast this vast regulatory apparatus so we can control ai i mean i think that that's that's the kind of um, agenda behind comments like that yeah dame caroline dinage and nadine doris will try and i don't know stop youtube showing us russell brand it always ends up with us not being able to see what things we want to watch and having less freedom and more regulation i know so i yeah, I just don't trust it. When, especially when they're all using the phrase or a very similar phrase at the same time, this is a threat to democracy. Then you could go conspiratorial and say, that's why this was released, for, so they could come out and do that as a response. But you can always go there. I mean, people too readily go to that now, I think. Um, mm. All right. Well, that's a sort of mini topic. Oh, and, and, and while we're on it, I suppose, we should also say that Starmer was, he was doused in glitter at the Labour conference. A man ran on the stage... And Starmer is pretty unaware. He's, he's in his speech. He could, you could easily get him. You know, quite disturbing actually when you think about how easy you can get a politician. Not that you know, obviously, I'm not, I'm not encouraging that. I'm saying probably in America there'd be a little red dot on this guy's head. But in 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 Britain, he, he ran straight up to him, throws glitter on him, then starts ranting about we need a people's something or other democracy, blah blah blah. And you just immediately knew it was going to be some posh guy, and of course it is. But he's he's from some group. I've forgotten the name now, but it's it's people's demand for something or other and they want a house of citizens instead of a house of lords you inevitably think it's just stop oil but it isn't it's some sort of point about the house of lords and democracy any take yeah i think it's isn't it yeah they're advocates of citizen assemblies which is a kind of soviet model in the original sense of the word in which it's a kind of alternative to democracy in which you have these kind of um uh little um, talking shops of people from kind of particular stakeholder groups and um, they get together and they debate what their response should be and then they come up with a collective response and then that feeds into the kind of the level up from them and this is a kind of vision an alternative vision of how democracy might work it's a kind of I suppose a form of participatory democracy but in which um uh, but but the, the 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 flaw in this kind of argument for people's assemblies and this alternative way of making decisions to the way we currently use is well, how do the people in the people's assemblies get elected? You know, it, it, they never seem to address that question, or if they do, I've missed it. You know, are they? Is it just going to be Owen Jones and his mates? 
anointing themselves as a people's assembly and then making proclamations and expecting them to have the force of law and somehow persuading the police to arrest anyone who doesn't go along with them. Um, it's, uh, you know, yeah, okay, the House of Lords isn't very democratic, but, you know, uh, the vast majority of the lords who have any kind of decision-making power, and they have very little, um, uh, are appointed by our elected representatives. So why is this a more democratic alternative? Who is going to appoint the members of the People's Assembly? They never really seem to broach that question. No, good point. They're probably elect them, elected by the, the group, and then someone runs on them and throws glitter on them, and that means they're sick of that person, and you go to the next one. The, oh, that's, the guy was, that's how they get deselected. Yeah, yeah. The guy was apparently called Yaz Ash Mawi, they reckon, and it's People Demand Democracy as a group. I couldn't remember it because it was so on the nose. People demand democracy. I mean, in itself sounds okay, but then again, so does Stop Funding Hate or Antifa, and they're all actually evil groups. I'm not saying this group's evil in that league, but they sound like dicks. <laughs> That's my take. I mean, and I don't encourage people going and glittering Starmer just because he's a bit of a tool and a tool maker's son. Um, should we go on to <laughs> Farage? Uh, so Nigel Farage said he won't join the Tories, and he, he made a speech about this. And it's annoying for me because I predicted that he will join the Tories and will become prime minister in 2029. And of course, it could still happen. And I'm sticking to my 2029 prediction as for, for Farage as leader. Maybe it's in a new party. Maybe it's as Tories. This is how I see it, Toby. Sunak gets spanked in the next election. Starmer gets in, destroys the country, but hangs on for five years. Then Farage swoops in the gaps there and he, and he wins it either as part of the Tories or as part of a new party. But it won't be the Tories, according to Farage. What do you think? Well, I interviewed Nigel Farage um, uh, on stage in Lola's at the Hippodrome. It's a downstairs bar at the Hippodrome in Leicester Square. Last night, it was an event for Free Speech Union members, um, and um, and I did try and sketch. He did. He did, as you say. Um, he reiterated what he'd said earlier in the speech at the Reform Party conference, in which he said he wasn't about to join the Conservative Party. Um, uh, he felt that there was very little difference between the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. Um, like Labour, the Conservatives weren't serious about doing something about increasing our border security, doing something about the little boats um, and so forth. Um, so no, he very much reaffirmed his commitment to the Reform Party, which I don't know if you noticed, but it's tightly changed its logo and it has the Brexit Party logo now on the underside of the badge. Um, so he's making it very clear that the Reform Party is the successor to the Brexit Party, which he led. So he's not about to turn his back on them and rejoin the Tories. But I tried to sketch out a scenario in which you could still win your bet. Let's suppose um, Labour don't win an overall majority. They have to enter into a coalition with the Lib Dems. Lib Dems don't make the same mistake they made in 2010 and insist on a referendum about PR. Instead, they insist on PR as um, uh, the price of entering into a coalition has to be introduced by an act of parliament. It is then duly introduced. The next election is then going to be fought um, uh, with a different electoral system. The reason we only have two main parties and it's so difficult for smaller parties to break through is because of our first-past-the-post system. I can see the Conservative Party, perhaps even the Labour Party too, breaking up into different constituent parts, becoming separate independent political parties in the event of PR being introduced. The advantage of being part of a broad church, part of a kind of election winning coalition 
um, if we no longer have first past the post is much diminished. Um, and so you can imagine, you know, um, because at the moment, a breakaway party, let's suppose, you know, in, in a way, the SDP was a breakaway party from the Labour Party and ultimately failed. But let's suppose the kind of right of the Conservative Party, if they lose the post-Rishi leadership election and Jeremy Hunt becomes the next leader, you know, um, at the moment, if we stick with first past the post, the disincentive for a breakaway party, a breakaway right wing conservative party, the true conservative party, um, uh, the dis- disincentive is, well, they're not going to win any seats uh, in our first past the post system. But in a in a proportional in, under proportional representation, they could easily win some seats. So it's perfectly possible that if the scenario I've described unfolds, PR is brought in, that the conservative party splits and Nigel Farage could become the leader of the true Conservatives as opposed to the current Conservative Party. That's not a bad name, the true Conservative Party or the real Conservative Party. Yeah, as you say, Reform UK have changed their logo. So it says Reform UK, the Brexit Party underneath, which is kind of a strange fudge. But this is something Farage has been talking about for a while. He spoke, was it when when Truss left? Or I can't remember. It might have been when they got rid of Truss. I can't remember. It was a while ago. He started speaking about... He's spoken to Boris Johnson. He's talked to a lot of people. He might come back as the Brexit party. There might be a new party. And he, he was hinting at this a while ago. I then got excited about this idea of him being in the Conservatives after the conference where everyone was going mad for him. But it does seem to be that other idea, which is the whisper I've heard, that it would be the right of the Tories, which is not mm-hmm. very far right, let's be honest, with, with reform together. But yeah, it did seem so unlikely in our current system. But as you say, in PR, it's a completely different world. They would have, there would be a big party if, if that was the case. Instead, we have this kind mm. of strange situation where Farage constantly influences everything from the outside, while you know they they wait and, see, and he pressures the, the Tories into doing things. Such a weird system. I mean, I, I do see the the perks of first past the post, but that's one of the surely one of the flaws that the, the arguably the most mm. powerful person in the country is not in any of the mainstream political party, or not in, not really in any party. He's sort of chairman of the reform or whatever he is. Well, one one point I made to him last night was. Um, you know, you're out of politics now, or at least you're not in frontline politics. Um, you have this bully pulpit at GB News, and using that bully pulpit, you're still able to change the political weather. You know, you put debanking at the top of the agenda. The government have said they're going to change the payment regulations, perhaps even legislate to make debanking much more difficult in future. Um, you know, that was in large part down to you with some help from the free speech union um uh, uh, and if you can if you can have that impact you know as a broadcaster why why is the siren song of frontline politics still so tempting you know why do you need to be in politics if you can bring about needed change from your position at the moment and he did sort of um take that on board but i didn't get the impression that he's willing to give up on politics just yet. But on the other hand, for someone like him, it's always going to be um, fun um, and sort of career enhancing to to leave people guessing about whether or not you're going to re-enter the political fray. Same reason Boris does it. Is he going to run for the leadership? Is he going to retire? Is he going to come back in another guise? It's a way of keeping yourself in the spotlight creating the impression that you're still a powerful significant player so you know i don't imagine he'll he'll stop talking stop flirting with going back into politics anytime soon but the fact that he does that doesn't mean he will and didn't you say there was also a hint that he would go for london mayor yeah well he 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 
he talks about the possibility that Corbyn may run. I mean, I think he he thinks that um, if Corbyn doesn't run, Sadiq Khan will likely win. But if Corbyn does 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 enter the fray, he'll take a lot of the votes that would otherwise go Sadiq Khan's way. Interestingly, the mayoral election is being fought on first past the post for the first time. Um, it was a form of proportional representation which wouldn't have hurt Sadiq Khan nearly so much because if Corbyn was eliminated before him, Corbyn's votes would, or Corbyn's second preferences would in large part go to Sadiq Khan. But there is no, there will be no second preferences in this upcoming mayoral election. So if Corbyn enters the race, it could torpedo Sadiq Khan's chances, allowing Susan Hall um, to come through the middle. Um, uh, but um, he did say that, um, you know, he called Susan Hall, Susan who thought it was very short-sighted of the Conservatives to um, select a complete unknown to be their candidate in the mayoral elections. Um, and he said that if an independent with a lot of name recognition enters the race in the event of Corbyn entering the race and throwing it wide open, he thought that independent could go on to win it. I said to him, is that an announcement, Nigel? And he laughed. Um, but I don't imagine it would be easy for him to do that because, of course, there is quite a strong Reform Party mayoral candidate in the form of Howard Cox, who's a kind of got a, a long track record of campaigning against um, various traffic calming measures like ULAs and low traffic neighbourhoods. It was an announcement, Toby, but he meant you. <laughs> that would be funny. That's why I'm proposing you, Toby. That would be, that would be brilliant. Um, and isn't it funny that we're here tonight? Um, what was I going to say? So I, I can do the cadence of Farage, but not really the voice yet. I'm working on it. Um, yeah. Isn't it funny? Isn't it funny? Um, yeah, mayor would be a tough challenge for him. That's one of the hardest things for him. I mean, because because so many people in London hate him and all the North London blob people I talk to and, you know, various other people who think he's anti-immigration, various demographics probably, probably wouldn't vote for him. So it's a tough one. And the Tories have really annoyed me with this, the way they've always failed to really tackle Sadiq Khan. Bailey got closer than anyone thought. And if they'd have put more yeah. funding into Bailey, he could have done it. It was really annoying. And they just feel these candidates, like as he says, that no one's heard of. And I'm like, why don't they seriously have a go at Khan? Because he's so destructive. And actually, he had mm. one of the worst tweets, by the way, on the Israel thing. He said, tragically, we know that violence in the Middle East can lead to a rise in hate crime in London. I'm in touch with senior officers at the Met and communities across our city. Let me be clear, hate crime in London will not be tolerated now or ever. I just wrote, if you think about this post for too long, you'll go completely insane. And that alone, I know people love it when I boast about my likes. That alone has 2,700 likes, which I only say <laughs> because it's like, that is an awful tweet because there's something so weird about it. It's like your leftist policies have allowed this. You're also soft on crime. You're kind of soft on the people that do this kind of thing. And what your response is going, sadly, we know that when stuff happens thousands of miles away, we do see Jews, you know, attacked. And he's going, you go, hang on, why is that okay? He's, there's something, he sort of accepted it in the premise of that tweet. But it's, it's people like him that have allowed it. Yeah, that reminds me. Did you did you see that um, a Jewish restaurant in Golders Green had its kind of front window smashed and um, some of some of the sort of damage done inside the restaurant and the till was stolen um, and it was I think um, on Monday, so two days after the Hamas attack on Israel. Um, and there was graffiti on a on a railway bridge overlooking the restaurant saying something like free Palestine. Um, and yet the Met have decided not to treat this as a hate crime. You know, 
which is pretty extraordinary. I did see that. I mean, it doesn't take it doesn't take much for the Met to treat something as a hate crime, but not that. I apparently. did see that. I, I thought it was pretty gross. It's it's this, it is this weird blind spot because of this leftist sympathy with Palestine and because everything is left in this country. Yeah, we we can't just call these things what they are. There's a similar thing with Trudeau. Actually, he came out sort of you know relatively strongly for Trudeau's standards against Hamas and saying it was an act of terror and and so on. And he was he was pretty clear on that. But then Savannah Hernandez made a good point. She said, great, now shut down their bank accounts and deem them domestic terrorists. Sorry, this was the, the people demonstrating. I strongly condemn the demonstrations that have taken place and are taking place across the country in support of Hamas attacks on Israel. Let's stand united against acts of terror. Savannah Hernandez says, great, now shut down their bank accounts and deem them domestic terrorists. Oh, wait, you, you don't need to do that to Canadian nationals. That is a weird thing. It's like, why can't you do that? Why is the treatment so much worse of these sort of people on the alleged right, like a trucker trying to earn a living mm. versus someone celebrating terrorist attacks in your country. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, but as I said earlier, that's not an argument for um, uh, the more even handed, um, more even handed debanking. Right. It's an argument for not debanking at all. It is. It is. And I'm not saying I want that. Um, so, all right, that's Farage. We're very interested to see how that develops. And we really do need to get rid of Sadiq Khan as mayor, but it seems almost impossible for some reason. What about this Lawrence Fox thing? I did cover this on GB News, actually. So Lawrence Fox had six police officers in his house over some comments he'd made about Ulez cameras, or that seemed to be what it was about. And people, it's the kind of thing where people tweet me, why, why won't you talk about Lawrence Fox? Actually, literally on GB News, I said, it's sad that Lawrence Fox has gone. I wish him well. He knows that. And this was appalling because the newspapers had tied the story of Lawrence being sacked and then they said, and now police come to his house. That's why I was addressing both. But, and I said, look, you've got, you've got his police officer in his house. You could say that Lawrence has brought it on himself by, you know, making comments about the ULES cameras and kind of baiting them. But then you go, well, why is Chris Packham fine? And he said he, he thinks it's okay to break the law on Channel 4, a state-owned broadcaster. Are the police at his house? So it is pretty appalling. It is it is a, surely a two-tier justice system. They took his kids' mm. electronics and iPads and all this kind of thing, and it's all intimidation. What did you make of that, Toby? Yeah, I think it's uh, it was quite disturbing, um, and I did feel sorry for Lawrence um, that you know it should happen on the same day that he's sacked by GB News, and it was clearly a pretty traumatic ordeal. I mean, I think he was kept for several hours, and as you say, they. They confiscated all his electronic devices. They still haven't given them back, as well as his kids' iPads. Um, and that must be very upsetting um, for them, not just for him. Um, uh, I, I, the police haven't charged him yet, but I think the two criminal offences he's being investigated for are, one, conspiring with others to break the law. Um, and I think the basis on which they're um, investigating him uh, for potentially having committed that offence, were his remarks to uh, uh, to, to Majid um, on on his show. Um, uh, but the second offence he's being investigated for is encouraging others to commit crimes, um, and I think he's got a pretty good defence for that second offence, which is that you know when he appeared on Majid's show, Majid's show. Um, he was appearing in his capacity as, you know, a professional campaigner, um, as the leader of um, 
the Reclaim Party. And as a journalist, he hadn't been sacked from GB News at that point. I think, you know, to, to, to arrest journalist activists for encouraging people to engage in civil disobedience um, would be a huge escalation in encroachments on legitimate free speech. Um, and as you say, um, Chris Packham's in an almost identical position. Maybe he couldn't be charged with conspiring with others to engage in civil disobedience, including breaking the law. Uh, but he could certainly be accused of the same thing, uh, the same the same second offence that, that Lawrence has been accused of, which is encouraging others to break the law. He was plainly encouraging others to break the law. So if you're going to investigate Lawrence for that, why aren't you investigating Chris Packham for that? Yeah, two quick things there. Didn't Lawrence say in a follow-up video that his views weren't the views of Reclaim in that context? He seemed to imply that just on your first okay. point. But then on the second thing, yeah, Megyn Kelly was saying there needs to be an agreement between two parties for it to be a sort of precursor to crime, and that there was no such thing. So she didn't think it even met the requirements for encouraging a crime or planning one or anything like that. I'm not sure. That's a, that's a legal question. It's, it's out of my league and depth, like so many things we've covered today. Um, but, you know, I do feel sorry for Lawrence. It's horrible to be cancelled and go through all this stuff. But it doesn't mean I'm going to quit my job. Thanks, thanks Twitter trolls. I love these people. I always pop up. You should quit GB News. You can't. It's like, oh yeah, thanks. Yeah, you. Why don't you quit your job? Your job first. And it's just like these people are idiots. But um, anyway, that's one of my particular bugbears. I think it's such a disgusting thing to be telling someone. Anyway, a second thing I felt was interesting with Lawrence this week was the "Have I Got News for You" clip, where Victoria Karen Mitchell is that right? She's there speaking to Carol Vorderman, and they're talking about the incident of him saying he wouldn't shag the woman. Then she says, about Lawrence Fox, would you shag him? And Vordman kind of just does a face, trying to sort of stay out of it. And Corin Mitchell says she would. And, you, and, you, and it does raise the question, and he's shared it, and other people have shared it, saying, why is this different? And there are a few possible answers to that. They're not necessarily all convincing. One is that it's comedic, and it's satire, and it's a comedy show. That you could also say Lawrence was trying to be funny on a sort of fairly raucous late-night discussion show. So, you know, you could, you could maybe... Is that similar? And then you could say, okay, it's self-defense. They're sort of retaliating. Although on the football field, retaliation always gets you a red card. Mind you, if you're Carl Rittenhouse and you're in the US and you're shooting someone in self-defense, that rightly gets you off on on self-defense. So I don't know. It's a sort of retaliation. But is it just because it's men and you can say anything about men? Is it because it's the BBC and they can just do what they want? Is it actually because of tone as well? Like Lawrence's tone, because he was so angry about what this woman had said about men, male suicide on the 50, how she'd seemingly dismissed it on Politics Live. He was still angry about that. Did he just have an angry tone when he said it? Whereas on the BBC, they're sort of, it's obviously it's japes and it's all jolly. Nonetheless, the words are the same. What do you think? Well, the words weren't exactly the same in that Lawrence was saying he wouldn't shag Ava Evans, whereas Victoria Corrin was saying, she would right, share. So that's Lawrence. the key difference. I isn't that, isn't that the key difference? It's um, I mean, she, she she was. I mean, maybe I think she was. I think she was just being funny. Um, uh, and maybe she didn't mean it, but she wasn't being 
straightforwardly sarcastic either. Um, it was, uh, it, I mean, it did make it different. I think it was, she, she, I mean, and also, you know, he's a man and Ava's a woman. Um, and as we know, you know, misandry, um, is much more acceptable than misogyny. Um, so, you know, um, uh, there was that difference too, I suppose. Um, though, you know, I'd be hard pressed to kind of, you know, make too much of that. Um, but yeah, no, I think the key difference is that, that, that she wasn't saying he's unshaggable. Um, uh, and dismissing him as kind of, you know, completely beyond the pale sexually. She was saying, actually, I would. Yeah, and she said in Gen X, you don't, you don't worry about these things. They, they don't stop you. And, it, you know, which was fairly funny. But, you know, I think the real reason is Toby. I think the real reason is that no one really cared that much about what Lawrence said anyway. It became a massive scandal, blown out of all proportion. Everyone had to say pretend it was the worst thing in the world ever though it wasn't a great thing to say on a broadcast special on a news channel it, you know it was not smart and wasn't polite and so on i think it the fact that we laugh about this or people are laughing about this on the show that the live audience are laughing does suggest to me that do people actually really care that much about these things in britain we, we use this kind of language shag and stuff and we make these kind of jokes i don't know yeah, that's what it suggests yeah. to me no- no question. It was um, it blew up because it became a stick to beat GB News with, um, and yeah, um, blew up out of all proportion. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is pretty much all our main stories. Shall I uh, quickly attempt to read an advert from Thor? All right. So we have a new advert from Thor, and it goes as follows: Why consider Thor as your coach? Christina Chase, startup advisor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, said, Thor's awesome. MIT teams can't say enough about him. Those who have had the opportunity to work with him have said it has been some of the best time they could have spent with any individual. A previous regular workshop leader at MIT Boston, Thor assisted entrepreneurial teams with their pitching effectiveness and presentation confidence. In August 2013, he was awarded the honor of being invited to become an EIR, or Entrepreneur in Residence, at the Technology and Engineering Hub. An ongoing volunteer coach for freespeechunion.org, Thor has a particular determination to make sure every one of his clients becomes their freest, most confident self. Miles Davis said, Thor has huge energy and insight, and with his support, we created a presentation that won us our largest contract ever, 20.4 million. His input was thought-provoking and challenging, and at the same time, helped build my confidence. I learned a huge amount, and on to top it off, he was fantastic f- fun. Thanks, Thor. Check previous client recommendations at linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt. Then WhatsApp 07906321593 or connect with Thor at linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt. And that was my attempt at reading Thor's ad from sort of a weird distance. I don't have a great setup for reading them live. When he said Miles Davis, I thought that was one of Thor's joke comments because he meant the famous jazz star. But actually, that was a real quote from uh, someone giving a testimonial to Thor. He seems to have endless testimonials. So check out Thor, guys. And thank you so much for the advert. So, and as I said before, get in touch if you want to advertise yourself. But now let's go over to Toby and Will with the top stories of the week. So I'm here with Will Jones, the editor of The Daily Skeptic, with our biggest stories of the week. Uh, Will, do you want to start off by telling us about the Ruther Glen and Hamilton West by-election and Labour's enormous victory and what that means and why it was. Yeah, so this was the news that uh, Labour uh, really, really had a thumping victory over the SNP in, that's the Scottish National Party for our international listeners, in the Ruther Glen and Hamilton West 
by-election. This was an election, obviously, outside of a general election and overturned a majority, a huge uh, majority of its own for Labour. And the the key thing uh, for us uh, at uh, the Weekly Skeptic and the Daily Skeptic was that that was achieved in part by Labour really backing off from a lot of the fashionable policies that have been really pushed recently, uh, net zero, uh, the war on the motorist, and also all the all the gender woo, the trans and gender self ID uh, nonsense that's really been pushed, um, especially pushed uh, north of the border where they're very even more left wing than they are uh, south of the border. Um, so we saw them uh, really uh, backing off from. Uh, from supporting the low emission zone around uh, Glasgow, uh, so they, they they withdrew their support from that. Uh, that's part of the war war on the motorist, um, and they've they've uh, said that they've accepted that Labour accepted for the purposes of this by election uh, that fossil fuels, uh, as per the, what the government has said, will be needed for decades to come, and therefore have supported or at least said they're not going to oppose uh, the continued uh, further drilling for oil in the North Sea, which is the sea um, off Scotland, of course, uh, and also really backing off from their former support for gender self-ID to say there need to be safeguards. I mean, of course, critics and cynics uh, will say, and, and I'm sure they'd be right to say that this is done for the purposes of the election, but it does at least indicate that Labour is aware that those policies are unpopular and that they do, if they want to win votes, need to at least appear to be on the sceptical side of those of those things, whether that will actually translate into actually, as and when they gain power, being uh, more sceptical about them remains to be seen. But it is at least an indication, a crack, if you like, in the edifice of the, uh, of the establishment thinking on, on those issues. You've left out one factor which may have... Um exacerbated the swing from the SNP to Labour, which is that the sitting MP, Margaret Ferrier, um, had been expelled from the SNP for breaching COVID regulations. So in 2020, she tested positive for COVID um, and took a train knowing she'd tested positive from London to Edinburgh. Um, And she made a public statement about it and was expelled by the party. Um, But don't you think that will have contributed to the swing from SNP to Labour in that constituency, in addition to the other things you've mentioned? Sure. I mean, there were plenty of other factors uh, going on and the legal troubles for the uh, for the SNP, um, the SNP experiencing a lot of big slide. Uh, and of course, as you say, the supposedly disgraced uh, nature of the uh, the exit of the previous incumbent. Although, of course, we would say that it's, it's ridiculous for an MP to have to resign her seat merely because she, she caught a train because she had a cold or, or a severe cold, we should say, if we're not going to get caught by the fact checkers. Uh, but yes, certainly it's a, but I don't know. I mean, do you, do you have any sense, Toby, of how of, of how much of a factor that that would be? Do, do you think that the Scottish public uh, really care about that? Um, uh, what because of the hypocrisy, maybe? Or do you think people still really care about testing positive for COVID and catching a train thing? I don't know, but I can't imagine it will have helped. I mean, she wasn't the SNP candidate. Um, uh, the SNP fielded another candidate, having expelled her from the party. Um, but um, uh, I imagine it, it was a contributory factor. Um, but who knows? Anyway, let's go on to talk about our next story, which is, um, uh, it, it was a story by Chris Morrison, our environment editor. And it was about some um, research uh, that's just been published by four climate scientists who've already published some preliminary findings showing the same 
result. And that result is quite controversial from a global warming point of view, because the result indicates that CO2, um, increases in CO2, far from being a cause of rises in average global temperatures, are in fact an effect of rising average global temperatures. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? That's right. Yeah, a remarkable story uh, from the world of mainstream climate science. So this isn't uh, not, not that there's anything wrong with being a, a fringe scientist, especially these days where a lot of the most important uh, and sceptical work is done on the fringes. But here we have scientists right from the centre of science world. You know, this is the, the Royal Society. Um, and these new findings uh, for scientists are confirming that those earlier findings of the Royal Society that uh, that as you say that that these that the cause and effect of CO two and temperature uh, insofar as there is a, a relationship between them appears to be from the data the other way round uh, because in fact according to this analysis and as I say this is this is a confirmatory analysis now from these scientists of work done by the Royal Society uh, last year, that in fact that the CO2 is rising after the temperature um, is going up. Uh, we know that the temperature has been rising moderately, uh, modestly, sorry, in the past few decades on and off. There have been pauses, as we know, but it has been rising particularly since uh, the 19th century and the, the Little Ice Age, as it's known. So temperature has been going up. And of course, carbon dioxide uh, levels have also been uh, been going up. The correlation there isn't isn't really strong. CO two emissions have been going up a lot during the uh, industrial age, whereas temperature has been kind of going up and down a bit, pausing, but generally has gone up since the mid nineteenth century. Uh, so there is that question of what the relationship is. But this this scientific work uh, really showing now these are uh, key scientific findings showing that the temperature rise is preceding the carbon dioxide rise by about six months. Uh, or more in this uh, in this very uh, sophisticated analysis that these scientists have done, as I say, supporting uh, the scientific analysis done by Royal Society uh, last year. So, uh, so really, really significant for, for the debate. It'll take a long time, of course, for this to filter down in, into the politics of it all. Uh, but as more and more findings like this uh, come out, and from uh, and from major uh, mainstream sources as well, as we say, that will have to have an effect um, mm. on on this debate. Although, of course, it will take a long time, I imagine, for it to affect the politics of the thing. Yeah, and and just to spell this out. Um, the meaning is um, well. If if this finding um, turns out to be true, and that higher concentrations of CO two in the Earth's atmosphere are not the cause of rising global temperatures, but an effect of rising global temperatures, then all attempts to tackle climate change by reducing carbon emissions are entirely pointless. Absolutely, yeah. Really worth really spelling that out. If if the relationship is the other is that is that way round, then there's no way that rising CO two emissions can be responsible for um, the any rise in the in the, in the measured global temperature. Yeah. Okay. Um, the next story you wanted to talk about is um, one of the I think it's not the latest, but the penultimate bulletin from Professor Carl Hennigan and Dr. Tom Jefferson. Uh, from their Trust the Evidence substack. They kindly allow us to republish their stuff. And they have been performing this um, arduous but essential service of reporting uh, on each day um, uh, of the COVID inquiry. Um, And I think uh, the COVID inquiry resumed this week. um, And uh, their first report was published 
So, well, the next story you wanted to talk about was um, a dispatch from Professor Carl Hennigan and Dr. Tom Jefferson, republished from their Substack, Trust the Evidence, um, which is a report on last Tuesday's session of the COVID inquiry. And um, it, it, it's, it's entirely predictable. Um, this section of the inquiry, this module, is looking at specifically whether the government was guilty of not doing more sooner to mitigate the impact of the global pandemic, i.e. should the government have locked down harder and faster. Um, and not surprisingly, various people have submitted evidence uh, to the inquiry saying, yes, absolutely, that's exactly what the government should have done. Yeah, just more depressing news from the COVID inquiry. I mean, as you say, entirely predictable, uh, but still no less depressing. For that, we have the lead counsel uh, to the inquiry, uh, Hugo Keith, uh, who is the lawyer who's uh, who's presenting uh, who's presenting a lot of the evidence um, and uh, and leading that process. And he uh, has he's talked talking about modelling here um, in the run up to the first lockdown in the UK. And I mean, as it's hard to summarise what he says really, because as Tom and Carl point out, what he says doesn't really make sense. A lot of gobbledygook. They've offered a prize uh, to anyone who can decipher what he said. So any uh, listeners who want to who get in on that could uh, go and uh, go and check out the story and respond to that. But the the, in, in, the nub of it is that um, he's claimed uh, that regardless of any uncertainty, supposedly it is he claims clear. Uh, that that COVID uh, cases uh, would have grown exponentially uh, without lockdown. How someone can be in this position could be making those claims three years afterwards, when, as Carl and Tom point out, we have the clear control uh, of Sweden uh, that really shows that that just simply isn't true. We even had Chris Whitty back in July of 2020 appearing before a parliamentary committee of MPs and telling them that the R rate, that's the reproduction rate of the virus, went below one before the lockdown was imposed. That's Chris Whitty himself telling MPs in Parliament that, that this is simply a false, false statement. Uh, Hugo Keith apparently unaware of that. So, but, but depressing because yet, yet again we have this myth, uh, this huge myth appearing that's based on all these these ridiculous modelling studies that have been proven false again and again. Uh, this claim that had we not locked down, that the COVID would have just kept on growing and growing and growing exponentially, um, even though in fact cases were already falling by the time the lockdown was imposed. And there is a huge amount of evidence uh, for that published by, for example, Professor Simon Wood in peer-reviewed journals. So um, so depressing. And, and then just as depressing, uh, we have the British Medical Association, the BMA, uh, which is essentially uh, the major trade union for uh, for the medical profession in uh, in this country, and their presentation, their evidence to the or so called evidence to the inquiry, yet again calling for more restrictions, earlier restrictions, just more more of everything. That the the big failing that supposedly of the UK's COVID response was that it just didn't do enough early enough for long enough, blah, 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 blah. I mean, they haven't changed the record in three years. And so we just have to hope that this COVID inquiry somehow, uh, despite all these assertions, these evidence-free assertions uh, coming from people like Hugo Keith and the BMA, uh, that we have to hope that it comes to different conclusions. But it isn't It isn't looking good, is it, Toby? Uh, no, but we probably don't need to worry too much about what conclusions it comes to because um, governments routinely ignore the recommendations of public inquiries. Um, so we saw that with the junking of the um, pandemic preparedness strategy. I think I'm right in saying that four previous 
public inquiries into epidemics and pandemics fed into um, the um, preparedness strategy. And that that strategy was um, binned um, within two weeks of um, the pandemic uh, being declared. Um, uh, So, you know, the government will just, the next government, if faced with another pandemic, will just do whatever politically expedient. Um, And uh, if it's not expedient to follow the recommendations of this particular inquiry, well, they'll just, they won't follow them. So perhaps we shouldn't care too much about it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Will, with our top stories of the week. Great. Thanks, Toby. All right, so that was Toby and Will. I'm back with Toby, and now it's time for everyone's favourite section. Of course, it's Peak Woke. So, Peak Woke, Toby. There's a few this week. I mean, one of them I thought was good was... Not good. I mean, good's a strange word. I mean, annoying and stupid. Was that Fiona Bruce got in trouble on Question Time for trying to identify an audience member and saying the black guy in the middle and had to apologise. Did you see that? Yeah, I don't understand why she had to apologise. What, what's, what's, what's wrong No one with could that? really answer. It was just, she was struggling to identify him. You know, the show's, you know, it's a live show. And she goes, no, 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 you in the middle. No, you're the black guy. And he was a black guy. I mean, yeah, but we're, we're in this strange time. I mean, yeah, what is the problem with that? Just I, even acknowledging it? Because the same culture that tells us constantly to talk about race and acknowledge race and acknowledge your white privilege, we can't actually say that someone's black. And yet we, we're constantly told that's the key difference between us. You see what I mean? Yeah. I mean, if I suppose, you know, people could say when you're trying to identify a white person with their hand up, you don't say the white guy. But of course, the reason she doesn't do that is because that wouldn't help the kind of boom operator figure out who she's talking about. Presumably, he was the only black guy in the particular row she was pointing at. So it made sense to say the black guy. Um, yeah, if it was one white guy in the middle criticize, of five black guys, she would probably say the white guy. You could have said the white guy, yeah. I mean, I suppose, you know, you could make a broader argument about why aren't there more black people in the Question Time audience. But, you know, I think you'd have to do some kind of analysis to show that there were fewer than there are in the population in those particular regions. Um, but, yeah, it seems like a complete storm in a teacup. I don't see why she... I mean, the BBC made a mistake of first what? putting that clip on Twitter and then deleting it as though it was something to be embarrassed about. And then, of course, people piled on. They shouldn't have done that. They should have left it up. They should have said, so what? He was a black guy. He was the only black guy in that row. Um, There's nothing racist about calling a black guy a black guy. And presumably he didn't object. I didn't see the follow-up. The only time the BBC doubles down that boldly is when you're complaining about massive left-wing bias on one of their programmes, like the one where everyone said GB News should be shut down. In those cases, they're very robust. We've reviewed it and we're sticking by it. In this one, it's like, you're right. But to, to be fair, they, they, they did acknowledge that um, that discussion about uh, GB News fell short of their usual impartiality standards. Um, uh, and I think they I, did. They, I don't think they even said they tried to get a spokesperson for GB they News did. to come on and they refused. They did, they did, did say, they say that, that. And I do know, actually, that okay. they did try and get some people. They didn't ask me. I'd be a great spokesman for any nor, company. Nor me. Yeah, no. they didn't. They should have asked. But uh, they did ask some people who couldn't make it. I think we should have had someone on there, to be honest. But I think GB are a bit shy about these things sometimes. I think Michelle, uh, when Michelle Juby went on Good Morning Britain, she did a very good job of defending GB. So why not? I mean, obviously Nick Dixon's a risk, but why not have at least, you know, at least a Michelle on there? But anyway, um, what about your first peak woke, Toby? Well, my first peak woke is um, it, it concerns um, NHS Lothian, which is um, a Scottish NHS trust, and 
it discovered that um, it benefited from a plantation, a small slave plantation in the Caribbean. So it's decided to, um, I think, uh, pay reparations to the descendants of the slaves on the plantation it itself benefited from. Uh, But it is quite extraordinary that an NHS trust, which is as you know, like every other NHS trust, constantly complaining about being under-resourced, about cuts and the Tory government and the rest of it, um, suddenly found enough money down the back of the sofa to pay reparations to descendants of we slaves. Do, we do a reparation story pretty much every week, don't we? It's always a good one. Pretty much every always week, Always a good one for yeah, Pete. Well, yeah. um, what about this? Board of Force staff permitted to wear LGBT pride rainbow epaulets. So Home Office policy seems to ignore Swella Bravman's concerns that's, that's a first, isn't it? A department ignoring Sola Bravman's concerns. <laughs> and, um, and they've had these epaulets. And there was a, so the Telegraph learned that on September 29th, 40 Home Office officials participated in an online discussion of LGBT issues in which a transgender Border Force official based at Gatwick Airport told civil servants that wearing pride epaulets is both welcoming and a little warning that you may have your prejudices, but we're not going to tolerate them. It's that lovely little warning. And so I find this amazing i mean not amazing because we're used to all this but someone said it demonstrates that we're an inclusive department i think it's the same person inclusive country whatever you happen to think so i love this inclusive warning that's a that's a new one it's like we're so inclusive be warned and they said that they they laughed at the idea of a mormon and i think mormons prefer the term uh, church of jesus christ of latter-day saints by the way but the border official continued, it sounds a bit sort of extreme, but I also remember the two Mormon missionaries who had real problems dealing with me and they didn't realize where they were going to be staying, but they'd booked an Airbnb on Old Compton Street, which is in the middle of the gay village in Soho, probably the pinkest place on the planet, apart from Canal Street in Manchester. I didn't tell them, but it made me smile. So it's a sort of, it's a hatred of, of the Mormon or Latter-day Saints people, but it's it's your ideology. But that that's sold as toleration and 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 you know inclusivity, which is of course mm. once again it's the exact opposite. Yeah, and I don't imagine you know the border force staff wearing these rainbow badges stop Muslims um, uh, as they're going through um, passport control and say, sorry, can I just ask you what your attitude is to gay marriage? And if they say. Yeah, I'm not in favour of it. I think marriage should be between a man and a woman. That they're then turned away and deported. Right, right. Good point. I know. Have a have a pop at the poor old Mormons who've never harmed anyone. You know, good people. The ones I know are great people. Yeah. Anyway, what's your other Pete woke? Um, some other Pete woke is a bit of a shocker. Um, uh, so um, a a he's described as a far right um political commentator, which presumably means he's not pro open borders but um he's called he's a swiss journalist and he's called alan sorrel and two years ago on facebook he described um a left-wing journalist catherine mackerel uh on facebook as an unhinged fat lesbian and um she um I think, uh, you know, accused him of, um, I think, of defamation, discrimination and incitement to hatred. Um, And uh, he's been sentenced to, in a Swiss court, to a 60-day jail sentence. Wow. So merely for calling this rival journalist um, with different political views to him um, a fat lesbian... He's having to spend not only is he, does he have to pay her court costs and a fine, he's going to spend sixty days in jail, 
And this was hailed by, you know, LGBTQ groups, both here and in America, as, you know, a great victory for social justice. And um, quite extraordinary. And I don't suppose any left wing journalists in Switzerland um, describing Hamas's slaughter of men, women and children um, in Israel as a beautiful, inspiring thing are going to be arrested by the Swiss authorities and banged up for 60 days. No, and, and watch the fat lesbian. I mean, that's quite important, isn't it? Yeah. The, the, annoyingly, the, 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 the story I'm reading about it has no picture. Um, so I, not that you'd be able to tell exactly whether she was a lesbian or not from a picture, but we'll be able to tell whether she was fat. Yeah, she might have been <laughs> overweight holding a sign saying, I'm a lesbian, then we'd know, we'd know both. But yeah, it's not that controversial, is it? If you're fat, I mean, we're not, we're not, we're not, I say fat anymore, apparently, but it's, it's not, it's not that controversial. And if you're a lesbian, that's yeah, not I mean, even an insult. Yeah. That's a description. I know. It was like, he's, and a, yeah, one of the, a leader of, um, uh, a LGBTQ group in Switzerland said um, the conviction of Alan Sorrell is a strong signal that homophobic hatred cannot be tolerated in our society. It's like, is that really, as you say, homophobic hatred? I mean, the word lesbian is not a pejorative term, is it? Um, it's what the L in LGBTQ stands for. I mean, if, if, if using the word lesbian is um, homophobic and hateful, then anyone who describes themselves as an LGBTQ activist um, is guilty of the same sin. Um, uh, adding the word fat before it, does that turn it into uh, an incitement to homophobic hatred? I mean, not if she's fat. I what mean, if, it's yeah. just ridiculous, What if he called Rishi Sunak a skinny Tory? What's wrong with that? Yeah. Because some people use Tory as a hate word, but he is a Tory, he is skinny. Yeah, you would have thought that describing a GC feminist as a turf, that would be, you know, if, if, if you think that hate speech is a thing and you want to prohibit it, that should be prohibited, not calling a lesbian a lesbian. Yeah, because that's an ex- trans-exclusionary, that is an insult to say that they're excluding trans people. Yeah, trans-exclusionary, radical feminist, I almost said it properly. Um, yes, absolutely, peak woke. I only, I've got one more, I don't know if I can even be bothered sharing it, but basically... It's that the world's dogs going vegan would save more emissions than UK produces. So the University of Winchester have calculated that if the, all the world's dogs went vegan, it would free up a larger landmass than Mexico and more fresh water than all the renewable fresh water in Denmark, which is kind of reminds me of a LA Confidential. Said, I wouldn't trade place with Edmund Exley right now for all the whiskey in Ireland. I wouldn't trade places for all the <laughs> renewable fresh water in Denmark. It's not a phrase you hear every day. So dogs going vegan, Toby. I mean, it's dog abuse. Dogs are not meant to be vegan. Humans aren't meant to be vegan. And it's just another. I mean, dogs, look, they were wolves. They were domesticated. And now it's just one indignity after another, really. Well, there does seem to be a kind of schism, doesn't there, between the animal rights activists and the kind of climate activists. And um, often, you know, the climate activists um, advocate the kind of slaughter of animals as a way to mitigate the impact or to, to reduce the likelihood that we'll go past a 1.5 increase average global temperatures, etc. Um, it does seem, you know, I thought you were supposed to care about biodiversity. I thought you were supposed to care about extinction. One of your leading groups is called Extinction Rebellion. They're supposedly fighting against the extinction of animals that is a consequence of climate change. But here you are actually advocating, you know, uh, the ill treatment of animals, in this case, dogs, but they've also advocated, you know, uh, slaughtering cattle. Um, in Scotland, where I just was, um, uh, the 
Greens and the SNP have just changed the rules about stalking. So you can now stalk stags year round as opposed to just within the stag stalking season. Um, uh, And the object, of course, is to wipe out the deer population of Scotland to make it easier to reforest the highlands and um, bring back, um, uh, you know, the great pine forests of the great wood of Caledon. Um, uh, but, you know, at some point, you know, what is the point of um, of uh, fighting climate change, of rewilding, if it involves the mass slaughter of innocent creatures? I suppose you're supposed to care about them. It's a great point. It's an impassioned rant. From Toby. I missed some of it because I started reading the reviews ahead of time. Sorry about that. That was unprofessional. Um, do you have any more Pete Wokes, Toby? No, that's okay. It for me. Well, then let's go over to the section I'm already doing research for. It's review the reviews. And I hate doing review the reviews. There was, I had a horrible review this morning of uh, my other podcast, which is a really good podcast. We just had Will Nolan on, and it was an absolutely cracking episode. It's very frustrating. And they were attacking me on this show via reviewing my other podcast, which they conceded was quite good but still gave it one star. I'm like, what goes through these people's minds? Anyway, we have a review here from Delilah 2023 that says exclusive content. I would welcome a paid version of the podcast coming soon, but only if it's uncensored. It's obvious that Toby and Nick can no longer say what they want to about Rosanna Lockwood, Calvin Robinson, and Lawrence Fox on the free version because it's being monitored by the 70th Brigade and the CCDH. A paid podcast where they speak freely would be better than a free one where they are self-censoring. So just to quickly address this, we're not self-censoring, really. But what's happened is there was a big story involving my employer. And it's very hard to talk about your employer. Because imagine you were, I mean, it's basically my day job. So I know it's confusing because it deals with similar issues. And it seemed, and it, you know, it's not quite as clear as if you were a plumber. But imagine if you were a plumber, you couldn't really come onto your podcast and attack your boss and, you know, the whole plumbing community here it just it just it just wouldn't work you can't really be attacking colleagues not that i would attack any of these people and you can't really be attacking your company either and I, not that i would anyway but i just don't think I, I, those are topics you could call that self-centering but i think that's just basic manners and, and professionalism and um the other woman you mentioned we did have a comment about which is why two national newspapers tried to cancel me so what you're talking about is when a story was blowing up involving my colleagues and when national newspapers were trying to cancel me off the back of it, you want me to just sort of weigh in and commit suicide. But if you've ever been canceled or if you're in the public eye, you would, you would know it's, it's a horrible thing. So you wouldn't do that. It's not really self-censorship. That's a little bit of timing and it's a little bit of professionalism about colleagues. I would draw a distinction there. But it is true that the 77th Brigade were monitoring Toby. So maybe they are monitoring this podcast. What do you think? <laughs> well, um, yeah, but the, the floor, I mean, I think... Um, the problem is that um, I'm not sure how much more unguarded we can be. I mean, I don't think we're particularly guarded at all, but um, the idea that um, the 77th Brigade and the Centre for Countering Digital Hate won't be able to monitor what's on what's available to our kind of uh, subscribers, the premium content on our new site, is a little bit naive because, you know, the plan is that if you pay a fiver a month, you'll be able to access all the premium content and it might be a bit racier um, and a bit more risque than the stuff that goes out on all the free platforms. But, you know, it'll be easy enough to monitor by the 77th Brigade and the Centre for Gandering Digital Aid. They just have to pay £5 a month and they can get access That's to That's the question. Board. Have they got the budget and the will to pay £5 a month to monitors? That's what we don't know. Maybe that simple paywall would keep them out. But yeah, you'd think if they're the intelligence community, they'd be able to crack that one. 
Um, so yeah, it's a good point. But we don't really censor. But thanks for the review because it was still five stars. Vimirio Vimero fifty gives it five stars. Informative. My Wednesday commute soundtrack always informative, and at least each presenter can disagree with the other. You won't get an episode of competitive agreement like some other shows. Witness the Russell Brand discussion. Only criticism is that a show can go on any more than forty five minutes is a waste as my commute finishes. A bit, bit of a solipsistic take there. Uh, you know, my commute finishes. Why is it longer than my commute? Single listener among <laughs> twenty odd thousand. Meaning I'm likely to miss the review the review section where Nick, he said something that is insulting to you, so I won't say that, pretends to get angry with the negative reviews. Pretends to get angry. Exactly. This is exceedingly funny. As we all know, <laughs> they are sent in to get him to act up. By the way, when searching online for The Weekly Skeptic, you will have to type in the full title as the Google algorithm fights you. I believe that. And then there's someone giving it one star because of Toby's comments on brand, which has happened a few times. But we've addressed that. There's another one that's five stars. Yeah, this is all good. I mean, you know, here's a good one. I love this podcast. Nick and Toby are the perfect combo. I do still miss the glory days of London Calling on a Monday and Weekly Skeptic on a Tuesday, staying skeptical. Toby, you've brought back London Calling, though. And it's actually led to some low-level abuse of me on Twitter. I mean, abuse is a bit strong, but someone said, um, this is what London... Well, actually, there's two. First, he said, Toadmeister kicks Nick Dixon back into the North London shag pad where he can twiddle his thumbs waiting for the next threesome with Will Jones and returns to the country manch to be with his first true love, James Delimpole. And this same person saw fit to write, this is what London Calling was always meant to be. After the quaffable Prosecco of Nick Dixon, Toby returns to the deep, rich Malbec of James Delimpole to discuss Lost Love's Trollope and random TV streaming as though they've never been apart. So, I don't know. I mean, can they, can they just leave me out of it? I mean, I, <laughs> but what was it like? I haven't listened to it yet. Yeah, it was... Um... It was it was, uh, it was it was it was nice to talk to James again. I hadn't spoken to him since we last did an episode of London Calling, which was about two months ago. And the plan was always to uh, not to end it completely, but to bring it back, um, but not weekly, but monthly, um, and just confine our conversation to cultural matters, what we've been up to, um, uh, where we've been on holiday, but avoid politics and avoid the arguments that used to rather mar London Calling, I felt, particularly towards the end. Um, uh, and we managed to do that, um, although James did taunt me um, uh, almost continuously. Um, he said um, he rather regretted the fact that politics were off the table because he knew, he just knew we'd disagree about Israel and he was itching to wind me up by telling me what he thought um, was the real reason, um, uh, what was really going on. Um, in Israel, and I'm sure it would have wound me up, and I was immensely grateful that I didn't have to hear his particular <laughs> take on that story. Um, uh, but um, he, he also said, I think when we originally um, decided to um, change London Calling and making it make it less frequent, um, it, we presented it as a mutual decision. But actually, it pretty much was my decision, and he sort of um, outed me uh, on the most recent episode of London Calling and said that. Um, uh, he rather missed our weekly argument um, and missed, I suppose, the opportunity to um, air his various theories about why different things were happening in the world um, and um, didn't mind in the slightest the kind of uh, rather acrimonious exchanges um, and, and would have and wanted to continue doing it. And and I sort of said, well, um, I, 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 I felt that we were generating more heat than light 
we were having the same argument every week. Um, neither of us were getting close to persuading the other of our point of view. Uh, we weren't getting into the issues in any greater depth. It, it felt a bit like a stuck record with both of us playing the same tunes each week. And I felt it was not only boring for us, but boring for the listeners. I did suggest, you know, the implication was that I pussied out. So I did suggest, you know, a live debate. I said, James, maybe a better format to have this kind of cock up versus conspiracy argument um, would be a live debate. And that would force each of us to kind of think a bit more carefully about our respective positions, set out our arguments in more detail, consider the alternative point of view, think about how to counter that. It could be a kind of more mature, more developed, grown up, deeper investigation of the issues underlying our differences. Um, and he said, no, I don't like public debates. Boring. Um, uh, and uh, and I said, what about a written exchange? You know, we could set out our respective positions in an exchange of emails and then publish them. No, even worse. Um, so he wasn't having anything else. He just wanted to carry on doing London Calling as was. And I, I don't particularly want to do that, but we are going to continue doing this kind of culture corner offshoot of London Calling uh, monthly for the time being. Well, I'm sure the fans will like it. Those are the only bits I actually didn't like of the podcast, the holidays, because I never go on holiday. And it's actually not clear with my current contract I'm even allowed to go on holiday. It's just been put to me. So I can never leave. So I haven't left the country since uh, 2016 or 17. And then you always on about your holidays. That just annoyed me because I've got no money and don't go. And then you talk about Culture Corner and you give away spoilers, even though sometimes it's really interesting. You give away spoilers and I don't have time to read endless Flashman books. So actually, I, I prefer the other part of the podcast. So I did love the podcast, but they're the only. They're, they're, but, but then again, maybe I'll listen to it. Maybe I'll try it out and try this new version. I'll give it a crack. And uh, everyone should listen to that as well. Um, and everyone should listen to the current thing with Nick Dixon, where we just had Will Noland, who was fired from Eaton and has a really interesting podcast it was so good he talked about how why andrew tate is a feminist that's an interesting one he talked about incels he talked about why promiscuity is feminist and he also talked about why feminism is misogynist he's an incredibly smart guy with like counterintuitive takes so i really recommend that one and if you want to help me out and help me with this podcast and that other podcast go to buymeacoffee.com slash nick dixon and just on my other podcast the current thing someone has said disarming interviewer tune in expecting a comedy type show and after the first few episodes realize that nick is a fantastic serious interviewer he has a subtle disarming interview style, which gets better as each episode progresses. So you see, I'm just going very, very serious on my other side. Quite comedic on this one. And then I'm realizing my dream of being incredibly serious on the other podcast. But then someone just attacked me for supporting Tate, who allegedly supports Hamas. It's like, Tate doesn't support Hamas. He doesn't. But then what's that got to do with me? And that, that's led to someone to attack me on my podcast. People are getting very, very emotional and irrational about this conflict. But I suppose you expect that. Anyway, go on. Yes. Anyway, you want to no, send I, people? I think, um, yeah, I think uh, you're right. People are going to get more emotional about this. Um, there's going to be calls for cancellation. Um, it's going to be tricky because um, it'll be like, as I said before, um, the uh, Black Lives Matter imbroglio. Um, and uh, but this time, all the calls for people to be cancelled will be calls from people on our side about people on the other side and the people on the other side I think will have said far more despicable genuinely offensive things than the people on the other side of that issue three years ago did so it's going to be difficult it's going to be difficult but I think we should try and hold fast to our free speech principles if we can um yeah just if you enjoy um this kind of content this kind of conversation then I'm sure you'll enjoy the daily skeptic um 
if you donate as little as five pounds a month, you have commenting rights. You can comment below the line. We have a very lively, uh, active below the line community on the Daily Skeptic. Um, lots of debates going on there. Sometimes the comment threads reach over 200, uh, but always fascinating to read. Um, and um, uh, uh, please also think about joining the Free Speech Union if you're not already a member, um, uh, particularly if you have um, heretical views about the current conflict in the Middle East. I think that if people do come for you, um, uh, you know, um, it'll be useful at the very least to be a member of the Free Speech Union. Yeah, I think I've been very sort of anti-Hamas and very clear, but it's funny how it's still not enough for some people. But yeah, join the Free Speech Union. And we're still looking for our website designer. We are interviewing people now, but um, if you want to still do that, get in touch at thedailyskeptic at gmail.com, subject heading website. And I think that is pretty much it, Toby. So until next week, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.